One of the things I say over and over again in the book is that um, systems like these don't crack down on poor and working people because they are helpless and vulnerable. They crack down on us because we're powerful and scary and we have the numbers. Welcome back to UVA Data Points. I'm your host, Monica Manning. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between Lane Raspberry, the Wikimedian in residence here at UVA School of Data Science, and Virginia Eubanks, an author, journalist, and associate professor of political science at the University of Albany. Recently, Virginia began the PTSD Book Club, an ongoing project that explores books about trauma and its aftermath. You can find this project and Virginia Eubanks' other projects at virginia-eubanks.com. This conversation was recorded back in 2019. And I know, I know, that's so long ago and the world is a completely different place. But before you switch to another show, let me just say, this conversation is extremely relevant to our current moment. In fact, time has only made the conversation more immediate. In many ways, it is a discussion that looks toward the future warning of the unintended or at times intended consequences of emerging technology. And it's a bit scary how much they got right. And while the conversation lobs some heavy critiques at the tech world, it also provides many reasons for optimism. It's a fascinating and multifaceted discussion. And so with that, here's Lane Raspberry and Virginia Eubanks. How do you do? My name is Lane Raspberry. I'm Wikimedian in residence here at the School of Data Science at the University of Virginia. I'm here with our guest today, Virginia Eubanks, who's Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Albany, State University of New York. That's right. Author of the 2011 book, Digital Dead End, Fighting for Social Justice in the Information Age. Co-editor of the 2014 book, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, 40 Years of Movement Building with Barbara Smith. And author of the 2018 book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. Virginia? <laughs> They're all a mouthful, <laughs> I'm just realizing. <laughs> Wonderful titles, uh, and they all have in common uh, social justice, civic issues. Can you tell me about your field of research and why all this is important to you? Yeah, so that's um, a, a great and difficult place to start. <laughs> so one of the things I often say about my um, career as a researcher, a writer, as a sometimes academic, sometimes journalism, uh, sometimes journalist, is that um, my colleagues and my teachers have always said that I'm very difficult to discipline, mm. um, meaning that I've always been very um, sort of interdisciplinary in the way that I um, I, I look at work. Um, where all of the sort of interest in this comes from is that I was a welfare rights organizer for 15 years. Um, and uh, much of the work that I have ended up writing about over the last 20 or so years of my life um, comes from doing originally a, a long project of participatory action research with a group of women um, a group of 90 poor and working class women who lived in a residential YWCA in my hometown of Troy, New York. Um, and so many of the things that I've ended up following are questions that we sort of developed together um, in our time doing sort of activism and participatory re research and organizing. Um, so largely I just sort of um, followed where my neighbors and friends and colleagues led. Um, and I feel just incredibly lucky to um, I, I think keep hitting on some really interesting questions about the relationship between um, technology and social justice and economic inequality uh, in the United States. Certainly not everybody in social justice is participating in new technology in the way that you do. That's true. I, 
find that rather uncommon. To what extent would you call yourself a data scientist or technologist? Yeah, that's also a great question. So I started in this, um, so I sort of came of age as an activist in the Bay Area of uh, in San Francisco and Santa Cruz in the mid 90s. Mm. Um, and this is, I'm gonna date myself very terribly right now. Now everyone will know exactly how old I am. I um, started out in this field as a contracted HTML programmer for CNET Magazine oh, that's um, right. in like 1994. Five maybe. So I had an interview with them that literally in involved the question, um, do you use ordered lists or unordered lists? And this was like a very difficult technical question at the time. Um, and I could also make a living um, doing this as a, as a contractor. Um, so I worked for CNET and a number of other places. Um, but I was also an economic justice organizer. And it was a really um, complicated, interesting, troubling time to live in the Bay Area. Um, so on one hand, I would hang out with the friends that I met um, doing tech work as a, as a contractor. and. Um, you know, folks would have sort of only half joking, ask if, you know, had you made your first million dollars yet? Like there's this very hard push. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, um, at the same time, I was watching things like public housing disappear in San Francisco and the city was visibly whitening over the time that I lived there. Um, and so it was really troubling to me that there was this um, dialogue about how everyone was gonna make a million dollars and also we were gonna solve all of the world's social justice problems. And yet at the same time, the reality that was happening outside everybody's windows was just being completely ignored. And so it really sort of forced me to a kind of a crisis of conscious, consciousness. Um, and I actually sort of fled the Bay Area and moved to this small town in upstate New York, small city in upstate New York, where I've lived the last 22 years, thinking like, whew, now I've escaped that. Um, and the year I moved, they uh, sort of rolled out um, a regional economic development plan, not surprisingly for the time, this is now 1997, um, called uh, Tech, um, Tech, oh, what was it? I think it was called, it wasn't, it was called Tech Valley. Um, and I was, and all the same narratives and all the same talk um, was happening. And so that's really where I started to think, okay, like let's figure out what's happening here about this story. Um, and that's when I started doing the, the work that I talked about earlier with the women at the YWCA, because I really wanted to get a sense from them um, how are you experiencing this, 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 this supposedly new world of technology? How is it really affecting your lives? Um, how's it affecting the services you get from the government? How's it affecting your neighborhoods? Um, and how can we think about it better together? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a long answer, but I started out as a technologist. Um, I um, still keep my hand in to a certain degree, um, but I fundamentally think about myself as someone who really cares a lot about the relationship between technology and social justice and the reality of people's lived lives. That's very fortunate that you were in these hot places <laughs> at their, in their boom times and an got to see these time. from different perspectives, yeah. yes. Can you say something about the usefulness of being interested in technology and journalism and social issues and how these uh, knowledge of any one of these can make someone better at practicing a career in any of the others? Yeah, so I, I think we tend to ask that question 
when um, we're assuming that the sort of priority skills there are the tech skills, right? Like, it often oh, happens yeah, oh, it's so important yeah. that you know, for example, how the inside of machine learning works before you can can say any have any kind of meaningful critique, say, of algorithmic decision making. <laughs> I'll say in my own work that I don't find that to be true. Um, one is that I find people in community who are um, seeing these tools be rolled out, um, who often see themselves as targets mm -hmm. of these tools, actually know a lot about them. And mm. they may not know like what the difference between an outcome variable and a predictive variable is, or why it's important to know the weights, um, or like the difference between a stepwise probit regression and you know random tree, random forest. forest yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, see, <laughs> I wrote a book about it. Um, uh, but they know a lot about um, the history of um, the use of their data um, in the past. Yeah. They have really good guesses about what's happening now. Mm -hmm. um, and often they have a lot more information about mm -hmm. how the technology is likely to interact mm -hmm. with their community in terms of really important things like power and privilege and money. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I do. I think it's important um, to have a set of um, lenses to look at this stuff from. Um, but I also sometimes feel like from the tech side, there's often a kind of math washing that mm. happens, which is like, we're gonna throw this sparkle dust <laughs> at this new policy. Yes. Um, and don't look too don't look too cl closely at the cloud of sparkle dust. Um, Cause like one of the things I saw over and over again in my research for automating inequality is people would say that these, that the, the systems were sort of algorithmic end to end. And over and over again, I'd find that like one part of the algorithm was like a guy sitting in a room, like <laughs> poking buttons right that there was often a human in the loop um even when these tools were as sort of advertised as entirely fully, automated, fully automated but there was a human systems. making decisions yeah. still in the chain right? um and there's been some great work actually around that by mary gray um and siddharth suri a fantastic book that came out this year called ghost work which is about the um the sort of oxymorons of automation's last mile meaning um the sort of invisible human work that often goes into making technology systems seem smarter than they actually are. It's a great book. Everybody should read it. Tell me some more about these people who are the subject or the targets of this automation. So you've got this book, Automating Inequality. Uh, you present three case studies in here, uh, homeless services in Los Angeles, uh, in Pennsylvania, child protection, and then Indiana health benefits. So there's these three systems, one might expect that these are three different sets of expertise mm -hmm. and that these systems shouldn't have anything in common, but you made a comparison both about the systems and the people who are affected by these systems. Yeah. What, what do these have in common and uh, who are these people and what's the, what's the common thread here? Yeah, so I was really lucky um, that how incredibly courageous the people who talked with me on record, right? Using their full, their real names, their real locations, their real experiences, um, particularly the folks who were currently in the public assistance system in some way, either mm. receiving Medicaid or um, trying to access homeless services, or currently like a parent who's currently interacting with child protective services, mm. took a, a they made themselves really vulnerable going on record with their stories. They took a really big risk um, sharing their stories, and they did so 
really in the hope that their stories would help other people. And so I'm um, really honored and really privileged to have been able to um, to talk to all the folks I did. I talked, I did over 100 interviews for this book. Um, and though I talked to people like really a, a, across a wide array of positions, right? I talked to people who are building the tools. I talked to um, administrators of programs. I talked to policymakers. I talked to legal aid lawyers. But in every place that I worked, I started the story from the point of view of people who see themselves as targets of these mm -hmm. systems. Because I feel like particularly when we talk about things like algorithmic bias or, or about um, some of the human challenges of artificial intelligence and machine learning in public policy, we rarely hear from the people who are really in the trenches right yeah. now, um, particularly around programs like public services that are, I, you know, I talk about them in the book as being kind of low rights environments mm -hmm. where it's, um, people are often facing decisions um, whether or not to share their information with the state <laughs> um, under conditions that could be said to be sort of officially voluntary, but not really consensual. Because, um, yeah, if you refuse to give the state your social security number or other information, you can't access public services. If you don't access food stamps for your family, you don't have enough m um, money to afford to feed your kids, then you open yourself up to a child protective investigation, potentially losing your kid to foster care. So while you can say, well, well, you know, people signed an informed consent about giving their, their data to the state, it's hard to say it's truly consensual or truly voluntary. And I'm really interested in the way these tools work as mechanisms of social control. And that's why I was really interested in looking at the public service system. I think there's a lot of great work out there about these kinds of tools in criminal justice. Mm -hmm. And I actually think there are really important parallels, but I've seen less work around um, uh, these tools being used specifically environment, in environments where they are aimed at um, shaping the lives of poor and working people in this country. And so that's really why I wanted to do those, those three different um, areas is that they they tend to be um, uh, programs that are targeted um, at our poorest, most vulnerable, um, uh, and also working class um, families. So different programs, right? So public assistance in one place, um, homeless services in another, child protective in another, in three different places like uh, Indiana, um, Pittsburgh, and Los Angeles. Um, but a lot of very similar experiences, a lot of very similar challenges, um, and uh, I think some similar solutions uh, as well. How similar were all these systems before the advent of automation? Well, that's a good question. Um, so one of the things that's really difficult about studying these systems in the United States hmm. um, is that most public service systems are um, federally funded or federally and state funded, but locally run. So it's not just that homeless services is different than yeah. public assistance is different than child protective services. It's child protect, or actually it's called children, youth and family services in Allegheny County is different than child protective services or ACS in New York City, which is different than upstate New York, which is different than despite Mendocino. Them all, all being federally funded. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, despite that, most of the funding comes from the federal government of federal and state. 
um, there is a, a huge degree of local control over the programs. And there's good reason for that, um, which is we should be responsive to local conditions. Um, and is that, but it makes it hard to study. Okay. Is yeah. that the, so that's certainly must have been the way it was before the, the yes. digital age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to what extent this advent of new technology uh, keeping the differences of local culture? Yeah. And to what extent is it making everything more more similar? Yeah. So um, one of the places that that came up really specifically was in it was in Indiana. Okay. Um, so the system that I looked at in Indiana was this attempt in 2006 to automate all of the eligibility processes for the states. Um, Medicaid program, which is the um, health insurance program for poor and working class people, sure. um, cash assistance, and um, what was at the time called food stamps and is now called SNAP yes. or supplemental nutrition assistance program. Um, so this was um, uh, a program that basically looked to um, consolidate the jobs of about 1,500 um, local county-based welfare caseworkers mm -hmm. um, who in the past uh, sort of accepted applications, often developed relationships with families over time um, uh, and helped them sort of navigate through a really complicated and difficult system. Mm -hmm. So um, this plan um, automated the, el the eligibility process, sort of took the application online, mm -hmm. um, and also moved um, these 1,500 caseworkers um, into privately run and regionalized call centers. Um, so one of the things that happened, one of the things I heard from caseworkers there um, was that in moving from what was a family-based system or a case-based system in the past to the technologically facilitated system, which was known as the task-based system, mm -hmm. really changed the nature of their work. So where before they were responsible for and responsive to a caseload of families, yes. now they responded only to, the, to tasks that were um, assigned to them in a computerized queue. So excuse and me, it, but, yeah. so, so before with these caseworkers, would they actually speak with the families or? Yeah, and often. They, they, yeah. Would al they would also pull the same family's file repeatedly over time. Often, yeah. And be familiar with that. Yep. And what's the situation after? So the situation after is basically um, all, all the caseworkers were moved yeah. to a centralized sort of regional call center. Um, that was uh, often 50 or 100 miles away from the place that they lived. Um, and rather than developing a relationship with a set of families over time, they just responded to whatever task dropped into their queue on this sort of workflow management system. And so one of the real concerns that caseworkers had to this question about um, changing the local nature of the job um, is that say somebody was um, applying for food stamps, it looked like they weren't gonna be eligible. Yes. In the past, the caseworker could say, oh, hey, looks like you're not gonna be eligible, but there's a food pantry in your town, right? It's open Tuesday nights. Mm -hmm. You should go down and you should try early in the month because late in the month they run out of food, right? So they would ha they have that kind of local knowledge yeah. about the place that they live. Um, and after the change, this was one of the major changes for caseworkers is that they felt like their sort of knowledge, their expertise, um, was no longer useful um, in the system. And it had really profound impacts on um, the families who were trying to access the system. So in the first um, three years of this experiment of automating the eligibility system, 
Um, uh, the state denied over a million applications for public assistance. It was a 54% increase from the three years before the um, automation plan. Um, and it had really profound effects on families, including one of the stories I tell in the book is the story of Omega Young, who was um, an African-American woman from Evansville um, who missed a phone appointment to recertify for Medicaid, mm -hmm. um, tried to call her local caseworker to let her know the, that she couldn't um, be at this telephone appointment because she was currently in the hospital suffering from terminal cancer. Um, despite her attempts to reach out and to tell people why she couldn't make the appointment, um, the new automated system, because she didn't make that appointment, said that she had failed to cooperate in establishing eligibility for the program and kicked her off Medicaid as she lay in the hospital dying from ovarian cancer. Um, so she actually died March 1st. Um, 2009, um, and the very next day, um, she won an appeal um, f uh, of her denial, and all of her benefits were restored the day after she died. So she, she lost her human advocate. She was having her case negotiated by a machine, such as it is, or a process. Exactly, and it meant she lost like free uh, transportation to medical appointments. It means she was in danger of being evicted from her house, like all this while she was trying to stay as healthy as possible through the mm. last years of her life. Her family is really clear that they don't blame the state for her death, um, but it is really clear that she um, suffered needlessly in the last several years of her life fighting the system. Hmm. You were generous or optimistic saying that when these caseworkers moved to the, the call center, they were taken from their local community and moved 50 to 100 miles away to a call center. Is there any effort or any reason to believe that these uh, task centers pull people from local communities, perhaps to advocate for the local communities or? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I didn't ask anyone that specifically, but I did talk to some folks who um, were had been caseworkers for a really long time, mm -hmm. 25, 30 years yes. by the time I talked to them and had weathered the change, like had gone through this process. So being retrained to use this automated system, yeah, leaving exactly. their old skill set behind? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what they would what they would tell me is that it felt like um, one of them, Jane Porter Gresham said, um, you know, I'm a social worker because I care about people, basically. And she said, if I had wanted to work in a factory, I would have worked in a factory. Mm -hmm. Right. And what I felt like I was doing after the automated system was trying to sort of fit widgets into this box. Yeah. And everyone who comes to you when you are working in public services, working in public assistance, come to you because they suffered some kind of trauma. They've, um, you know, there's been a fire, they've lost a job, someone's gotten sick, um, right? Like something really fairly awful has happened in their life to because drive Because these them. are hard jobs yeah. that take talented people and don't pay a lot. Yeah. So you have to have a reason to want to be there. Yeah, and she said that really what she felt is before the automation, that her job was about like looking people in the eye and yes. letting them know that it can get better. And that was the thing that drove her out of the profession. She basically retired after the automation. She sort of, because she, that, that she told is, me she tried to hold in as, pos as long as possible, but in the end it was really affecting her health and she ended up retiring. You started this book with quite a long historical narrative, yeah. the his history of uh, social, social welfare, activism, labor movements. Uh, and I, I took that to be an unusual place to start. I hadn't <laughs> My seen editor thought so too. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. I was going to ask you, uh, how, how original was that idea? Do you have any reason to believe that anyone who was designing these automated systems was yeah. looking to the precedent yeah. of other interventions in their design of these new systems? Um, well, this is the moment that I always thank my wonderful editor at St. Martin's, uh, uh, Elizabeth Disagard, because originally the book started with a 93-page history of the last 400 <laughs> years of poverty policy. And she was like, oh, Virginia, please, God, don't do that to them, please. And so she encouraged me to get it down to a felt little like 25 pages of history. But I actually think that history is really important because we have this way to think about new technical systems, kind of like the monolith in 2001, <laughs> A Space Odyssey. Like it just comes from space, yes. but it has no context. It that, like it's just uh, lands on a blank slate and changes everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not the reality of how technology is integrated into society. Um, there is a kind of deep social programming around these systems mm -hmm. um, and that deep social programming, I think of as sort of the legacy programming of these new systems. It runs underneath yes. the actual programming of, the, of these systems, often in ways that are unacknowledged. And that's the thing, I don't think there's anything necessarily dangerous about technology per se. Mm -hmm. um, what I do think is dangerous is that technology is, in the cases that I look at, in particularly in public assistance systems or public service systems, is politics pretending it's not politics. And that's what's dangerous about it. What's dangerous is this idea that these tools are fundamentally neutral, that um, that neutrality is actually what we want um, like as a value, mm -hmm. and that efficiency and cost savings are like our most in speed, um, integration are our most important values, like rather than values like self-determination, dignity, um, uh, fairness, uh, equity. Um, and so um, the reason I started the book with a history of the poorhouse in the United States mm -hmm. um, is because the poorhouse informs all the decisions we make in public policy today, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so um, I use in the book, um, I use this metaphor of the digital poorhouse yeah to talk about these algorithmic tools and predictive models and machine learning and artificial intelligence as being part of that history. Um, so the way I talk about the tools in public services is often they're much more evolution than revolution. And in order to make better decisions about how we build these technological systems, we have to understand that history. Um, and so I'm sitting in Charlottesville, Virginia right now. You have in Charlottesville, Virginia, a, a street called Poor House Road. And the reason you have a street called Poor House Road is that's where the Albemarle County Poorhouse was. Um, and I've been, this is the weird way I get to know all new towns I go to, which is the first thing I do is look up where your poorhouse was. Um, and um, often try to go um, visit. Uh, and I often leave flowers in tribute because many poorhouses had um, unmarked graveyards. So there's still graveyards of generations of poor and working people. Um, I believe now where your poorhouse was is now a, a country club, <laughs> uh, but I have not confirmed that yet. Um, so give me till tomorrow and I'll let you know um, for sure. Wait, I wrote it down. Goodness. Uh, the Glenmore Country Club. Uh, so the original poorhouse uh, that was called the Albemarle Inn, and it was two miles east of the Keswick Depot. So I don't know where the Keswick Depot is, but I'm going to find out. 
Um, as of 1899, they had 43 inmates. Uh, most of these were built in the 1840s and lasted. The one in my hometown was standing until 1956. Inmates is the appropriate term for the residents? That's what they called them. Yeah, I see. that's what they called them was inmates. I see. Yeah. You've talked about the human connection in these systems, the importance of keeping the people from the local communities with the local knowledge involved in in all these new interventions and new technologies. And you've said how the history of previous uh, human efforts uh, evolves into whatever the new technology is. You seem to have struck a chord with many media outlets. So for your book, Unmetting Inequality, magazine Slate, The Atlantic, The Jacobin have interviewed you. You've given interviews to them. Yeah. Uh, commercial companies, unusually, asking for your interview, Ed Surge and Sumo Logic. Yeah. Uh, open Mind on uh, City University New York Television. You've presented at different universities, Berkman Klein at Harvard, Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford, giving interviews for them as well. And on different radio shows, NPR is All Things Considered, The Majority Report with Sam Sater, and This Is Hell for WNUR in Illinois. You've had quite a tour with this book. Yeah. And I find that unusual and exceptional. Why do you think so many media outlets are interested in this story that you have to tell? Yeah, so I think we're in the middle, like people are now talking about this moment that we're in as sort of the tech backlash. And I'm not sure that that's a fair um, way to describe the moment we're in. But what I can say about the chord that the book struck was um, I feel like the book came out at exactly a, the same moment where people who did not have a lot of direct um, experience with these systems, particularly in public services, started to get really anxious about their own interactions with tech, with with um, data-based decision-making systems in their in their daily lives. So you're talking about the actual workers who are using. No, I'm actually talking more about sort of the wider middle professional middle class sort of reading and worrying public, uh, right? Who all of a sudden are like, wait, what is Facebook doing with my data? Yeah, okay. And one of the things that I was really interested in doing um, was sharing these stories from people who have been dealing with these kinds of um, data extraction and invasion of their privacy and exploitation of, of their labor through sort of technological means for really 20, 30, 40 years um, at this point. There's a lot of wisdom there. Um, mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of um, suffering that needs to be addressed. Um, so one of the stories I tell at the very beginning of the book is about a woman I worked with, this is back in 2000 now, um, who uh, was part of a team of folks who co-designed a, a tech lab with me at this YWCA um, mm -hmm. in my hometown. And one day we were sort of sitting around just sort of talking, sort of shooting the breeze about technology. And this was right after um, electronic benefits transfer cards, EBT cards came out. And they're like um, ATM-like cards that um, states in increasingly have been loading public benefits on. So if you get cash assistance or, or SNAP, mm -hmm. your those benefits will go on this card rather than being in like paper, paper stamps. Um, and so we were talking about uh, EBT cards, um, and I asked her. So it's like Dorothy, like, what do you what do you think about yours? It's pretty new. And she said, ah, you know, there's some things that are better about it. It's a little bit more convenient, maybe, right? It's maybe there's a little less stigma when you use it in the grocery store. She said, but 
You know, one of the things that really bothers me is that my caseworker, um, because it's a digital card, mm -hmm. can call up a list of every place that I've been, like every place that I've spent money. Um, and so I'll go in and talk to my caseworker and she'll say to me, for example, like, why are you spending all your grocery money at the corner store? Don't you know that going to the grocery store um, is is more is is, you know, more um, is, is less expensive? Um, and I must have had this like really sort of shocked look on my face that this is something that she was having to deal with because yeah. she kind of like grabbed my knee and laughed at me for like a solid two minutes for being naive. Um, and then she got a little quieter and she looked at me and she's like, oh, Virginia, you know, you all, um, meaning sort of professional middle class people, you all should pay attention to what's happening to us because they're coming for you next. Um, and I really feel like that moment in a lot of ways was the moment that I really started to do this work in earnest. Mm. Um, not because I was concerned with warning middle-class people about what was coming, but because I realized how different um, people's experience with these systems are depending on their relationship to sort of larger patterns of power and privilege. Um, and it's not just poor and working class families who face this kind of interaction with the tools of sort of the, the digital revolution. Um, migrants, communities of color, people who live in public housing, um, right? Any place where um, there's low expectation that people's rights will be respected yes. are places where um, uh, the government and private um, entities experiment on vulnerable populations with sort of new tools. And this, again, goes in very, very far back in history, all the way back to the sort of anti-grave robbing laws um, that said that um, medical schools couldn't hire people to steal middle class corpses from graveyards. Um, but what the state would do instead is give them for free bodies from poorhouse graveyards, right? So we see this moment over and over again where poor and working class people are seen as experimental populations um, in ways that might even push science forward, but do so at, a, at an enormous cost um, to people who aren't always um, seen as an important part of the story. There's quite a few worrying stories in this book. You've been around, talked with a lot of people at this point. I want to ask you about two responses. One, uh, what do you think of the narrative in your book? Is it hopeful, scary, uh, neutral information? So I'd, I'd like <laughs> for, for you to critique it your own book. It is not neutral information. Right, um, right. I mean, I'm a, I'm a neutral reporter. Yes, um, okay. As a reporter, it was actually one of the th one of the things that was really important to me was to find, um, to not go after the worst case scenario stories at all. Okay. And while, I mean, Indiana's not a great story. Like that's that, yeah. that might be a black hat story, but in both Los Angeles and in Allegheny County, the tools that I talk about there, coordinated entry in LA and the Allegheny family screening tool in um, Allegheny County um, are some of the best tools we have, not some of the scariest. So by best, I mean, um, that the designers have often done everything that progressive critics of algorithmic decision-making have asked them to do. Um, they've been largely transparent about what's inside the, their models or their tools. Um, they've put the tools in public agencies. So there's some kind of 
um, accountability, um, democratic accountability around the tools. And in some cases, they've even used some degree of sort of participatory design with people using the tools to develop them in a way that's sort of fair and thoughtful and takes lots of different people's um, uh, knowledge into account. And I did that on purpose because I think it's quite easy to sort of like pick three case studies and that are just shooting fish in a barrel. Um, mm -hmm. Like, and it'd be really easy to write a simply um, a, a story that, or a set of stories that just make people paranoid. Mm -hmm. and that was not my intention at all. And I don't think that's what the book does. I think what the book does is raise really important questions about the social justice issues at the heart of the kinds of technological decision-making we're making around economic inequality today and bring the voices and the critiques of those people who are really facing the pointiest end of the automation stick um, into public dialogue. So I don't think that I'm all at all sort of selling fear in the book so much as acknowledging that there are um, some really tough experiences and some really smart critiques from people who see themselves as targets of, of these systems. Um, I think overall that the, the, the story that the book tells, um, while not necessarily easily optimistic, um, is a rousing one, right? One of the things I say over and over again in the book is that um, systems like these don't crack down on poor and working people because they are helpless and vulnerable. They crack down on us because we're powerful and scary and we have the numbers. Um, and it's, a, it's an, an attempt at control. Um, and you can see that if you look at the history, that the, that the tools of um, social control of poor and working people change at the moments um, when we are feeling our power. So I actually think the story is quite, um, if not optimistic, hopeful, rousing, um, and it connects these issues to um, other kinds of social issues that um, movements are organizing around in ways that I think are really meaningful um, for how we move forward. I'm glad that you felt a rousing public response. I, I hope that's I feel we... roused by it, um, but then I'm biased. Let's talk about how to make people more roused. Okay. So we're at a university right now. There's so many faculty and staff here talking to students yeah. about predictive analytics and all these issues that you raise. What role do you see for universities to play in this discourse about automation? Yeah. How, how do we rouse people? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, so, I mean, I, so I still, I'm uh, currently, I'm a half-time investigative journalist and half-time in um, the political science department at, at SUNY Albany. Um, I feel like it's an enormous privilege to have um, conversations with young people um, in classrooms and, and other places um, on campus. Um, I feel like universities have extraordinary resources for um, having conversations, but also just like in terms of actual resources, mm -hmm. um, sort of hold on to um, a lot of the tools, a lot of the finances, um, uh, sometimes networks um, that are meaningful for this kind of work. I think what I've learned after being in a university, so are we gonna include grad school? If we're including grad school, being in universities on and off for 22 years um, is that um, 
the fatal flaw of universities getting involved in this kind of work is that they come in thinking they hold all the expertise um, and that what they're doing is uh, charity, is giving kindly of themselves and their resources to like, for example, the communities in which they're situated. Mm -hmm. And I think that is enormously dangerous um, and a way to really reproduce these kinds of problems rather than really interrupt them. So I think universities need to come at this with a kind of modesty mm -hmm. um, that um, acknowledges that we have very specialized and important expertise um, but it is only one form of expertise. And often we make really big mistakes um, when we move into um, doing work that has really profound, direct, concrete impacts on the ways people keep their families safe and healthy or, or fail to. Um, and so we really need to learn from the people who are most affected. We really need to learn to um, produce structures that force us to share power even when it's uncomfortable, um, including things like power over um, research questions. Yeah. Um, that was one of the biggest challenges for me as a graduate student when I first started doing participatory action research. You've mentioned that several times, participatory action, the importance of it and everything. Yeah, so it was important to me, like, and it's not a specific method at all. You can do any kind of research method in a participatory action research with a participatory action research orientation. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that um, is different about it is you're doing research with communities rather than on them. Um, and that actually means some really challenging things for academics, including things like giving up a certain degree of control of your research agenda. Um, so instead of saying, which is what I did when I first started doing it, going into a community and saying, I'm here to help, right? Like the problem is the digital divide. So let's build technology resources. This is basically what I did at the Y. And two years into this project, bless them, the ladies of the Y sat me down and they were like, Virginia, we love you. We think you're really sweet. But all of your questions are stupid and have nothing to do with our lives. And it was just such an incredibly generous thing for them to do. And it totally shifted the way I do this work. Um, that I realized I was coming into the work with preconceived notions about what people's problems were that weren't wasn't their interpretation of what their problems were. Um, and that I needed to enter the space with more humility, more modesty, um, and really be willing, able, and excited to learn from folks who had experiences I, I didn't have. Um, and so, uh, yeah, in the long run, I think that's one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me was the uh, intervention <laughs> from the women at the Y. Yeah. I'd like to describe a situation for you, and I, I wish you could respond and tell me, if, is this an accurate modeling? And then I've got a question about it. So there's uh, government and corporations who are designing these automated systems. There's the people who are targeted about it. I sort of imagine that universities are kind of a third third party in this, yeah. and somehow universities could do something to have the corporations or government shift some of the power or control to the people who are targeted about this. Yeah, is is that some, a role that universities could play? And if so, what's an obvious way that universities could help transfer yeah. power? Well, so I'd love to see that. I I mean, what I mostly see right now is the opposite, which is that you, mm -hmm. academics are producing these tools for the state. I see. Um, and then often spinning them off into entrepreneurial endeavors that mm -hmm. become private companies. So if you look at um, 
uh, PridePol, for example, or other kinds of predictive policing technologies that was produced at UCLA hmm. uh, or USC. Uh, I don't remember which. Sorry. Uh, it's either I, USC I or UCLA, yes, yes. right? Um, and then spun off into a, an, into a company, a, a private, very big one. Yes. Yeah, a private um, entity. Um, so I would love to say that academics, you know, are on the side of targets of these tools, but often we're, we're not. Um, and I think that there are really smart, really well-intentioned people working in the space of producing technologies for the state um, and doing great work around that. But there's equal numbers of folks who maybe don't know as much about the policy area uh, and the history of the policy area and power as they should. Um, and then they're walking into situations and then they're surprised when their work is used against what they think the original intention was. And so one of the things I talk about a lot when I talk about the book is like, how do we build these tools um, in ways that sort of harden their ethics um, so that they can't be used against their um, original intention? Um, I'm not sure that that's possible. Um, and I've found many of the folks working and many of the academics working in this space haven't thought a lot about that. I've actually, I actually asked the academic team that produced the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, I asked them directly, like, well, so right now this tool produces a score that basically um, scores every family with um, uh, a number um, from zero to 20 um, that says how high a risk they are uh, for abusing or neglecting their children. And everybody right now, the administration and the um, designers of the tools say, like, we'd never use this to take kids out of their families. We're only using it to make sure that they get extra resources if they need them. What happens in practice? And, and, and I asked, um, you know, so right now, um, largely people trust this administration and mm -hmm. the community is sort of given the administration the flexibility mm -hmm. to sort of experiment with this. But what happens if you get a new administration in who is not oriented towards the community in that way? And I, and I asked the academics, like in that case, what would you do? And I remember they told me, oh, well, in that case, like we try to put something in our contract that says if they use our tool against the intention that we really wanted it to be used for, then we'd have the right to say something about that. And I was like, but <laughs> like that, that actually doesn't seem like actually building a lever in yeah. where we can say, like, like, look, this this is not acceptable. Like using this now to risk rate every family in the county. Um, and to pull kids out and put them in foster care is unacceptable. And they're it, like, is there some way like we can install kill switches in these things? Very interesting. Right? So they can't be used in ways that we find personally morally reprehensible. Um, and that's not something we're thinking about um, as much as we should be. All right. So that's a good description of the university relationship. Mm -hmm. Something uh, perhaps long term, the way the universities relate to communities over the long term. Yeah. So shorter term intervention that universities have we continually get students in and send them yeah. out into the workplace. Yeah. We're a school of data science. Yeah. What kind of skills or conversations should we be having with these students yeah. who are not part of academia and who are yeah. gonna go out into the world? Yeah, so it's so interesting. I speak a lot to, uh, to groups of students who are in data science. Yeah. And I definitely, when I like do lectures, um, pretty much the first or second question I always get asked is, is basically, a way of phrasing, um, like, give us a five-point plan 
for not doing the things you're talking about in the book. And I always say like, you know, I I wish I could, I wish I could give you a five point plan. That's like, oh, here's how you protect against this happening. Um, But the reality is like the, the systems that I'm describing, Mm -hmm. the technical tweaks to the systems I'm, I'm describing, uh, the systems have existed for a really long time. Um, And they're really deeply embedded in our culture and our politics. Um, And they're going to be really hard to shift. Um, and if we are trying to push the world towards social and economic justice, mm-hmm. um, that is long-term, long-haul work. Um, so data scientists are who care about social justice are like a special kind of unicorn that yes. I'm always like looking to um, find ways to wrap them in bubble wrap and protect them um, because it's a, such an incredibly important set of skills, yes. um, but an equally important set of skills of skills and knowledge is like really knowing about the people your tools are most likely to impact. So if you're working on a tool that is going to be used in homeless services, like you best go out and meet some unhoused people. Um, And that's on us as people who work in in the field uh, to really know enough to be able to predict what might happen with our tools um, before we we engage in, the, in that work. And I know that's actually a really high ethical bar um, yeah. to set for folks. Um, but I also think given the, the world we live in, um, that it's a, it's a really necessary one. All right, I wanna ask you a critical question. Sure. So there's this ongoing conversation about should we be more bold in automating more systems mm-hmm. or should we be more hesitant? Right. Uh, so, you, you answer the question in different ways, but I wonder in all your research, can you tell me what evidence gaps do you see that uh, people make arguments on shaky, shaky evidence in one direction or shaky evidence in another? What kind of information do you wish existed or do you, do you find to be absent? Oh, that's great. I mean, there are some examples of folks who are actually doing like the data work to fill some of those really important gaps. Yes. I'm, I don't know that I'm going to come up with the name of this project off the top of my head. Um, but some folks who are related to data for Black Lives, for example, mm-hmm. have been compiling um, uh, officer-involved shooting data yes. um, uh, nationwide. Yes. Um, and that's just like a hugely important data need. Yeah. Um, uh, so those kinds of projects are, are happening and I think are really important. Um, the other thing that I, I often say and I think is really crucial is like if we have all the sort of um, data scientists and technologists we need to build systems like the ones I talk about in the book that divert people from public assistance, mm-hmm. then we have all the data scientists and information we need to actually reach out to people who are eligible for public assistance and are not getting it in order to facilitate them getting public assistance. So in some states, um, it's only like the receipt rate for something like cash assistance is like 7%. So like 93% of people who are eligible for cash assistance in Indiana don't get it. So again, but that's like a, that's a political change. Like we currently can't do that. There are some states you can't even advertise that food stamps exist because the states are so focused on diverting people from programs rather than bringing them in that they think advertising is a advertising a program would be a failure of the program because people would then use it. So wait, let, let me ask you. There's all these systems which help screen people who are accessing public benefits mm-hmm. 
And you're saying that the tendency of these systems is to divert people away or to deny access. Can you tell me about the systems that are being designed and where the investment is going to make systems which recruit people into public benefits? Are you saying that these- Yeah, so I, I'm saying that those don't ex don't really exist yet. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Although there are, um, I, I, I'm saying that basically we have the expertise and the information to do that right yes. now and we're choosing not to. I see. Um, that's not true across the board. There is like, for example, a really great organization in Chicago called M Relief, lowercase m, like mobile relief. Okay. Um, and one of the things that M Relief does, it's really amazing is, um, so one of the scariest things for my family about applying for food stamps, um, is that, uh, particularly when you apply online in the state of New York, there's like 20 different screens that ask really, really pretty intense questions about mm -hmm. your family and your life. Um, and you have to fill out every every bit before you sort of hit the arrow to go to the next page. Mm -hmm. And then after you've answered questions that are like, you know, seem pretty crazy. How many refrigerators do you have in your house? Like, tell us like how you prepare food. Do you prepare food together? Do you, you know, like all of this really pretty intense information about your family. At the end, there's basically just a button that says go. Um, and, the, and that button releases all that information to the state before you even know whether you're gonna be eligible for the program or not. So yeah. it's just, you're just taking a dice roll. Like, you're just like, okay, I hope you use this the way you say you're gonna use it and you're not doing anything else with it. And I hope I'm gonna be eligible for this program. But at the point you hit the big button, like you don't know either of That's those so things. so much vulnerability and so yeah. much commitment for people to get a- It's a lot answer. of trust. Yeah. It's like a lot of trust. And most people wouldn't do it if they had any other option. <laughs> so what M Relief does, which is so interesting, among the things, they do lots of different things, but one of the things they do is help people get on um, SNAP on, on food stamps, um, CalFresh specifically, um, California's um, mm -hmm. version of food stamps. Um, and one of the things they do is they, um, they actually have you apply through their app. They hold the data um, in, and keep it anonymous. They ping the system to see if you're going to be eligible if you're going to be eligible, they then turn around and say, okay, it looks like you're going to be eligible. Do you want us to release your information? So it's like one, they do a lot of other things, but that's like one very simple change that is actually really profound because what it does is give self-determination back to people who are often feel like they're in a situation where they don't have a choice about what they do with their family's information. And I think that's super crucial, particularly because these are political systems. And as political systems, they are teaching people what government is. Um, and if what government is, is this like enormous, terrifying data vacuum cleaner? Um, like that's not, that's, that's not how we want people to think about government. And that's not how we want government to sort of operate is um, as this sort of frightening, life-changing, privacy invading system. Um, so, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to think about doing this work better. I think the primary one is because um, of the basic inalienable right to dignity of all human beings. Um, and, um, and organizations like M Relief, I think do a great job at bringing basic values like dignity and, and justice back into the work. All right, so about dignity and justice, we've talked so much about automating inequality. I wanted to ask you about another one of your books. Yay. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, 40 years of movement building with Barbara Smith. So this was an activist. Could you tell me about her and yeah. 
why you're interested in this person? Well, so Barbara Smith is this extraordinary individual. She was one of the um, original members of the Combahee River Collective, um, which was a, um, a this amazing collective of Black feminists in the late 60s and early 70s, starting out in Boston. Um, and they're famous for, um, for producing, well, for a number of things, but among them producing the Combahee River Collective Statement, um, which was this really clear, beautiful articulation of Black feminism um, in the early 1970s, where we get, you know, such terms as identity politics. Uh, and, uh, and we believe intersectionality, or at least what they called interlocking oppressions. Um, so she's this incredibly profound, brilliant organizer and writer um, who later, um, because they decided as women of color um, writing for their own survival that they needed to control the means of production, later created their own press called Kitchen Table Women of Color Press, um, which published some of the most important books in um, women of color feminism um, in the United States, including this bridge called my bag. Um, and uh, all the women are white, all the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. Um, so uh, and she later became um, an elected politician in Albany, which is near where I live. Um, and it's just an absolute sort of hero um, in local organizing and in, in my life as, as a welfare um, rights organizer, I came into contact with her quite a lot in Albany. Um, and basically the story is when Barbara Smith asks you if you want to do something for her, you say yes. <laughs> um, but we, my colleague Alethea Jones and I produced this book um, that we think of as a sort of um, mixed up reader. Um, that sort of raises some really important questions about how to do social justice organizing through her life, through the stories of her life. So it really starts with her civil rights organizing in the 50s and 60s, all the way through her her work as an elected official in the in the 2000s. Um, and it produce it creates um, this kind of conversation between. Um, uh, early writings of hers, writing about her, um, movement ephemera like buttons and flyers and um, uh, and also sort of historical organizing material um, in ways that help us think through um, how to do um, multiracial feminist organizing um, attuned to class um, now. Um, and it's been really great to watch um, how this sort of really incredible moment in racial justice organizing um, has been able to reconnect with Barbara's work, um, not just because of our, our book, but with, a, with that book as one of the resources. Um, so uh, yeah, she's just this extraordinary woman and it was such an incredible opportunity to learn from her about organizing um, and about living a life with integrity. Um, and she's, she still lives in Albany and she's still organizing and I believe she's 76 now and uh, she's just still, still a hero. That's great. Can you tell me something about, especially uh, you, you put so much emphasis on what she did in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. How can that inform anyone who's working in new technology today or to what extent is that possible? Yeah, so I mean, I think one of the fundamental, um, one of the most important Oh, so many important things. But one of the most important things um, that come out of that tradition um, mm -hmm. is that idea of intersectionality, mm -hmm. the idea that, um, and identity politics. So mm -hmm. though, though identity politics 
um, has been given a bad name um, by um, folks who have a, a sort of, I think, really flat interpretation of what identity is. One of the things that was amazing about Combahee um, was as the way they thought about identity politics is just saying like, as um, generally um, black women, many of whom were lesbians um, and many of whom were working class, we have a right to organize based on our own experiences and not to try to fit ourselves into anything else that doesn't fit us. Um, and actually not only does that make space for us, but that produces a better politics because we live at so many intersections of oppression um, that uh, freeing, um, uh, say, working class black lesbians means freeing pretty much everyone else because you have to address <laughs> patriarchy, racism, classism and capitalism um, and a number of other things in order, in order to free us. Um, and so sometimes people interpret that as a sort of um, oppression Olympics, like you win, the more oppressed you get, but that was never the intention. The intention was to say that we all live in a web of social relationships and, and power relationships um, where there are parts of us that um, uh, carry privilege um, and that there are both benefits and problems that come with that. And there are parts of us that carry oppression and there are both benefits and problems that come with that. And understanding ourselves better and understanding those intersections where we that we inhabit better means that we're gonna be better at politics and we're gonna actually be better at building coalition with other people. It's not about, because I'm, the barber would say like, uh, you know, how limited my politics would be if I only cared about those who look just like me. Um, and that was uh, never the yeah. intention uh, of intersectionality or identity politics. It was always about multi-issue politics. It was always about building coalition. Um, and I think that, that that matters, not just for organizing, but for doing this kind of work in technology as well. Understanding things like how power works are really important to that work. Hmm. That's very inspiring. Thanks for sharing. Oh, that. I love Barbara Smith. She's amazing. Everyone should immediately look her up. You've got another book that I'd like to mention, Digital, Digital Dead End, Fighting for Social Justice in the Information Age that you wrote in 2011. Yeah, way back in the day. I'd like to ask you what changes you've observed, mm. because there's some similarity between yeah. the theme of that book and the theme of your 2018 book. Yeah. First, could you summarize what this book was about? Yeah. And then could you tell me what have you observed as a significant change in, in that time? Yeah, so Digital Dead End was the book about the work I did at the with the community of women at the YWCA, this, this five years participatory action research um, that I did there. Um, and it has sort of three, three halves, uh, if I can say that. So the first half is um, what I think about as sort of the real world of information technology. So that was really about the conversations that I had with women who lived in the community about how um, these ideas about high-tech development were affecting their experiences and sort of their day-to-day -day lives. So how does it affect sort of regional employment prospects? Like how does it affect um, your interaction um, with technology in um, the systems you come into contact with in your day-to-day -day life. And one of the key insights there was the 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 that conversation I had where they sort of the corrected EBT. me. Um, not about the EBT specifically, but about sort of the way I was framing questions. Your survey questions. Yeah, Let's so they, um, one of the lessons they, they offered um, in that work was that the, the problem was not that they lacked access to technology in any kind of simple way. Um, and in fact, that technology was really ubiquitous in their life. 
Um, but the kinds of interactions that they were having with it tended to be exploitative and demeaning. Mm -hmm. um, so they were coming into contact or, or disciplinary. So they were coming into contact with these technologies in the high wage, low tech, uh, I'm sorry, the high tech, low wage workforce in the criminal justice system and in the public assistance system. Um, and so the first half of the book sort of talks about that. The second half of the book then says like, okay, if uh, the given is that um, folks are having these often very difficult interactions with technology in their day-to-day -day lives, how do we think about sort of critical technology education uh, in a way that takes that as a starting point rather than ignoring that reality? Um, and so the second half of the book talks about sort of what we came up with, what we call popular technology, which is a way for people to come together and to talk about their interactions with technology in sort of a critical, thoughtful, and um, productive way, that, a way that was oriented towards justice. And then the third half, the reason I call it a third half is because there's a huge appendix on the end of that book that basically um, just gives a ton of documentation of the kind of work we did. So meeting minutes and popular education exercises and all sorts of stuff that um, give everybody the resources they need to, to do the work for themselves in their own communities. I wish more people would publish those kind of supplementary. Notes. I loved that. It was like a, it's like a 60 page appendix. And I think it's, I shouldn't say this, but I think it's the best part of the book. <laughs> Cause it really, it gives you this incredible flavor of like what that work felt like. And I think what's so important to take from that, even though we were dealing with often some very difficult situations and some folks really struggling to meet their basic needs, um, like we took so much joy in the work that we did and uh, we all learned so much from each other and it was so inspiring uh, to do the work. And so part of the point of sharing that material is to to inspire people to like, not just see this as like, oh, we have justice. Like, oh, we have to pay attention to justice <laughs> so hard. Be so much easier if we didn't have to think about this stuff. The reality is like the work itself is hard, is challenging, is crucial, but it's also amazing. Um, the company's really good. Um, uh, I um, have become so much less cynical a person and so much more optimistic a person since doing this work. Um, just because I see people who um, really are facing incredibly difficult situations in their lives and nevertheless do collective work oriented towards liberation with just humor and generosity and courage. And uh, I just feel so privileged to be able to do it. Incorporating it in their day-to-day -day lives. It's not something that's added onto their work duties. It's completely a part of their routine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Uh, can you say something about... Uh, the, the mood of technology or these kind of interventions in, in 2011 versus 2018? I, should I even be asking you? Yeah, such a, no, such that's, a, a that's a really interesting, that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so I've, I actually feel like I've been doing this work for a long time. So I feel like this is in some ways the work that I left the Bay Area to try to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, and I certainly haven't figured it all out. Um, but um, I mean, I think one of the things I see that is really inspiring um, is that increasingly social justice movements, um, whatever their other areas of sort of focus and interest are, like mm -hmm. whether it's racial justice, whether it's LGBTQI work, um, whether it's feminism, um, whether it's labor, 
Um, I feel like so many movements are also thinking about the way these tools impact their work. Mm. Um, and they're thinking about it in, in such interesting, um, such meaningful, such important ways, right? Like um, Edward Snowden did not discover digital surveillance, right? <laughs> like that, that has a long um, racial history in the United States. It has a long class history in the United States. And this work has been going on for a really long time. Um, one of the things that I think is so interesting about these tools, about these technology tools, is that they make those relationships so concrete um, that they can offer really powerful points for organizing around because they make the social and power relationship so visible. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I see a, there's a lot of that work happening now in a way that it, it felt um, very inchoate in, back in 2011. Um, it, it felt like um, we were really interested in figuring out this work and other people were interested in it as well, but we didn't quite have the language to talk to each other yet. And, and we weren't really sharing experiences in that way yet. And I think that's really different today. Um, like just uh, last week, I was talking to the president of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, um, and they've been fighting against the system that's called robo debt there that basically has been trying to collect money um, from folks who were supposedly overpaid public benefits in the past. Um, and uh, he's talking about right creating basically worldwide unions of the unemployed, um, oh, but organizing around these kinds of tools. Um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme um, Poverty and Human Rights just in October produced an amazing report about the relationship between artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, and sort of the digital welfare state um, that I think is gonna be an incredible resource for organizing. Like I just, yeah. I feel like the conversation is so much more sophisticated than it was a couple of years ago. I feel like the the way people are thinking about resistance and self-defense is really different than it was a couple of years ago. Um, I feel really excited about the way these conversations are going. I appreciate the positive attitude you've had about everything we've discussed this evening. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that I've failed to ask you that I should ask you or anything more that you'd like to say about any of this? No, I just want to reaffirm um, like how important it was that the folks I spoke to, uh, the, the families I spoke to who are targets of these systems and automating inequality, what an incredible risk it was um, and, and how grateful I am that they trusted me with their stories. Um, it's uh, an incredible mitzvah, like it's an incredible gift of generosity and kindness um, that they agreed to make themselves more vulnerable so that um, other folks would feel less alone. And uh, so I just always try to reaffirm their incredible generosity um, when I'm talking about the book. It's like you said, you have some rousing ideas that inspire people and make them dream of a better world and so. make them enact it. I hope so. Thank you so much. Thanks for speaking with me. Yeah, it was great. Appreciate it. Thanks for checking out this month's episode. We'll be back in March to bring you another conversation. In the meantime, if you haven't already, check out season one of UVA Data Points. We're currently working on the second season, so keep an eye out for an announcement about this later in the year. Also, if you like the podcast, let us know. Give us a rating and review. If you need to contact us, send us an email at uvadatapoints at virginia.edu. We'll see you next time.